0: Kyle, lovely uh, to have you here again. Yeah, um, I had in mind to do a talk, I guess, that I called What's the Point of a Religious Life Part Two. <laughs> You'd think there'd only be part one. Um, yeah, but sort of my, my heart and my, uh, I don't know, the. Field of my awareness and is somewhere else, you know. It's with maybe it with like with many of you. What's going on in Israel? And of course, I have. Um, it's an emotional and real connection I have to the place because I lived there for three years, for one thing, and also because of my phone, you know, and the personal. Relationships that are affected here, and I'm at an age where uh, my friends, their kids, are being called up, you know, for duty or medics, and where they're still in basic training. Or um, I got a text from a friend, my closest friend, um, and he said that his uh, his high school buddy, along with his son, was taken as a hostage into Gaza. So. It's hard to look at, really, and um, and is not unrelated to my question: What's the point of a religious life? Because, in case you don't know, the tentacles of religion and religious ideology are have their uh, grip around the questions of what's going on in Israel and in Palestine, and in the Middle East, in, uh, in the broader sense. I mean, I used to say that in the ancient world, this is a common refrain in graduate school, in the ancient world, there's no difference between religion and politics. You might just say there's no difference between religion and politics, really. They're, um, I don't know, there's a, they're intertwined, to say the least. So I'm actually not sure what I'm going to say right now. And, um, and of course, um, you could just say, well, don't say anything at all. <laughs> uh, there's a funny, I got this from one of my professors. He used to say that, well, if you come to Israel for a week, you'll go home and write a book. And um, if you stay for a month, you'll write a newspaper article. And if you stay any longer, you won't have anything to say. And um, it often feels like that because, especially in, in mainstream culture, we are absolutely obsessed with um, myopic grouping of th- groupings, like Palestinians. We might not even know what that means, or who they are, or where they live, or whether or not there's a difference um, among one family to the next or one region to the next. We have no idea. And same with Israelis. And that, that ship has sailed. <laughs> I mean, it, maybe it, it, it never really was afloat in the first place, but if I can encourage you in any direction, it's to slow down and... Um, open up to a much more nuanced and complicated conversation. Um, anyway, so I'm not sure where I'm going to roam, but here's, here's, here's something that I would like to posit, which is um, this is part of what a sp- spiritual community ought to be wrestling with, um, like culture. Culture international politics I would love nothing more than just to talk about local politics well that's not actually true but um, or to narrow it down to even something more um, agreeable <laughs> but I think if you're going to be a spiritual community in the 21st century here um, it's important to say well how far-reaching does that go you have values and and how does that affect your life and how does that affect your voting habits and um and how much do you really even hold the values that you say you hold and, and these are tough questions and and what's the relationship between the value system that we're wrestling with as a group and I think wrestling as a group with the value system is a lot better than doing it by yourself but what is the relationship between that wrestling match and what we see going on in the world and what kind of conversation conversations can we and should we be in um when I was a, a preacher, you know, and a, a meg, megachurch preacher, I remember one time I did kind of what I'm about to do right now. It didn't have anything to do with Israel, but I just, like, detoured away from whatever notes I had because of some dramatic event that was taking place. And I remember one person saying, you know, if you turn attention to this event, when is that going to stop? You know, then you'll just always be, you know running after the next thing. And I sort of understood the point. But I don't know, I just had this other feeling. You can't seal yourself off. And so um, you can't seal yourself off from, I think, what the world demands. And so in our own tiny, tiny way, maybe all I'm trying to do is acknowledge something important is going on on the other side of the planet that that are that calls for our attention. And how many of you pay taxes? So don't pretend like you don't have a say. Okay, don't pretend like you don't have uh, you're not involved in some way. You're involved if you're a taxpayer. And um I want to try to weave in the initial quote I had here because it reveals I'm I'm more or less arguing that um, for a kind of return to the the religious life. That's kind of my posture in the world. But I don't mean it the way that is ordinarily defined. And I certainly don't mean it by adherence to fundamentalist doctrines of various kinds. But I mean as a kind of posture and orientation toward life, a life orientated toward mystery, and meaning, and depths, and the unconscious, and the great structures and stories that have shaped humanity for better and worse, um, and not worshiping at the monotheistic god of the economy. But there, there are deeper structures of meaning that call to us and call to the human spirit. And Anyway, that's kind of what I mean by um, a religious life, I guess. Um, but I, I had a quote here today from from Howard Thurman. Howard Thurman was a theologian. Um, if you want to understand the, the, um, the spine of thought behind Martin Luther King Jr., then you should read Howard Thurman. And uh, he's a kind of a radical thinker, really, especially for his, um, you know, the time in which he lived. But I want to read you a a little meditation of his. And I'll just tell you explicitly, this is partly how I think about one of our own fundamental values here at C3, which is the the dignity and worth of every human being. You might have your own way of defining it. This is a kind of poetic musing on that. Notice what he says. There is in every person an inward sea. And in that sea, there is an island. And on that island is an altar. And standing guard before that altar is the angel with a flaming sword. Nothing can get by that angel to be placed on that altar unless it has the mark of your inner authority. Nothing passes the angel with the flaming sword to be placed upon your altar unless it be part of the fluid area of your consent. This is your crucial link with the eternal. Now, I have to be honest. Um, I'm not sure what he means here. You could probably read this quotation every day for the next week, and you'd still be wondering, what is he getting at? And I do know his primary stance in the world was to ask the question, what does the religion of Jesus, he didn't really care for Christianity so much, it seems to me, but what, did the, what he called the religion of Jesus, does it have anything to say for people whose, quote, backs are against the wall? That was his famous line. And what's it like to have your back against the wall? And... Um, And what do we think about the inner state of every human being, regardless of the socio-political circumstances in which we find ourselves? What's, what's, what's going on in the interior landscape? Now, I don't want to riff on this um, passage then for the next 30 minutes, because, um, like I said, I, I'm still wrestling with it myself. And, but if I just leave the second part of this aside, Well, first I'll say something about it. (laughs) He's saying that there's a kind of inner authority that human beings possess that guards the sacred dimension of their own being. Like, he's saying every human being has a sacred dimension and actually every human being has access to a kind of angel that can protect that no matter what the circumstances are. He's trying to say something encouraging here. But also, even more simple than that, look at these opening lines. There is in every person an inward sea, and in that sea there is an island, and on that island there is an altar. That's his basic view of human beings. That's a pretty, I think, beautiful and radical way of looking at human beings. Inside every human being, even the ones I don't like, there is an altar. And it's their connection with, with what he calls the eternal or the sacred, or you could even say innate, the innate preciousness of being. <laughs> just like a door opening (laughs) to the inner dimensions. So I, I guess I just wanted to read this quotation because, you know, Palestinians, Israelis, I think most people on this planet, most Israelis and most Palestinians, and most of you and most of Americans, I think do believe that they might not say use words like sacred or altar, but I think most people want to and most of the time act on there's an inherent dignity and worth to every human being, even if ideologically I disagree, even if that person is my enemy. They're still a human being. So I might wander in and out of things that you might not like in the next couple minutes, my own views about the situation, not that I'm it's my job to just dole out my views here, but um, I am saying that in the background of the dignity and human worth of every human being. And part of working toward a culture that is as just and as fair as possible, I don't think, I'd, I'd firstly, I'm, I don't believe in a kind of utopia, but a just and fair as possible, allows more of this sacred dimension of our inner worth to shine. And cultures that do not, situations that do not, um, that diminishes the human glory, you could say. Um, I moved to Israel in 2003. And this was... At the height of the Second Intifada, it's called. Intifada means uprising. And um, maybe as a, just to slide in, to a little bit of um, contemporary framing, it's very important if you care about this, which I'm going to argue you should care about this. You should care about what's going on in, um, in Israel. Um, There's a difference between what's going on in Gaza and what's going on in the West Bank. You have two different governments, um, two different ideological stances. Actually, many more than two, but that's just a simple way of saying it. Um, But anyway, it was the Second Intifada, and Gaza was its own um, issue and problem when I was there. In fact, in 2005 is when Ariel Sharon forcibly removed all the Jews from uh, the Gaza Strip. He went in with the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, and took men, women, and children, s- dragged them right out of their homes um, to, uh, as an attempt to try to minimize the ongoing conflict between um, Palestinians or certain really um, um, groups in, in Gaza and Jews who were living there. That happened in 2005. And ever since then, Gaza has been sealed off. Israelis don't come and go. There are no Israelis that live there now. No Jews that live there now. So that happened when I was there, um, and um, but much so even more dramatically. These were the days of suicide bombings and terrorist acts, and I was very naive when I got there. I mean, I'm still naive about much of this, to be honest with you. Um, but I was even more naive and. I kind of had this, um, I'm not picking on anybody other than myself, a kind of like liberal temperament that went something like this. Whoever's in power is the problem, and whoever has less power is kind of the good guy. And that's kind of the way I walked into, into Israel. Well, you know, Israelis, they have a lot of power, and the Palestinians don't, and therefore the Palestinians are more or less the good guys. And I would challenge you, (laughs) this way of framing things doesn't work, all right? It doesn't work, and it's not very helpful. And that's to say nothing about empathizing with very real and concrete problems that Palestinians have to this day and have had since the state of Israel, and actually before that with the British and the French, and before that with the Ottoman Empire. And before that, with the Crusades, and now I I, I was about to go all the way back (laughs) as far as I could. Um, It's a region, as you know, that has been in constant turmoil for much of what we would even think of as history. Anyway, what was my point? My point was um, actually feeling the concussive effects of a suicide bomb, which happened to me, when I was sitting at home working on a paper on um, historical geography and ancient routes and the relationship between geology and civilization, as you probably, I'm sure, were thinking of this morning, um, changed, pulled me out of this kind of naive, um, I don't really want to look too hard stance in the world. And really to terrorism, I didn't even like the word terrorism because everyone was like, the terrorist this, the terror. I don't, you know, this is, when did 9-11 happen? 2001. And so it's just a couple years after 9-11. And it's like everyone was on the war path for terrorists. And and I, was, I just had this feeling, ah, it's got to be more complicated than that. And who are we even talking about? And there's some truth to that. But um, I started to recognize that Many of the groups that are still around today, which the United States government has called terrorist groups, are in fact that. They're not, these aren't um, groups in which negotiation, there's not a peace table that anybody is walking away from. And Hamas is an example of that. This is an organization that is bent on the destruction of the Zionist state. And ask anyone who speaks Arab what they're Arabic, what they're chanting in the streets, and they'll tell you, death, death to Israel. Push them into the sea. This is their mantra. Along with an occasional death to America, let's throw them in as well. Um, And I'd like to say about that, that paying attention to ideology does matter. Now, you could say, well, they're pushed into a corner, you can come up with arguments for why they take the stance that they take. But I just it's important to say, ideology... And religious ideology, and the and the way there those are intertwined. It's it's important to pay attention to and to really listen to what people are saying. And um, to what's going to happen? Here's my guess. Over the next week, all kinds of people are going to say, "We support the Israelis." Governments are going to. They already are, um, you know, changing the color of their capital buildings to imitate the Israeli flag and because what what's happening we'll see is is another guess I have will be as big and is as big as the six-day war and and the Yom Kippur war and uh, perhaps even the founding of the state of Israel we shall see Um, but that that is gonna wane pretty quickly and that narrative especially in the mainstream world um, will quickly fade for whatever reason for a whole bunch of complex reasons, and um, words like fighting for their freedom and things like that will be uh, raised. And what I what I want to just mention, and you're free, you're an autonomous human being, you can disagree with me, and that's what talkback is for. And um, but Hamas is a, a a very dangerous organization with billions of Iranian dollars, and the Palestinians pay the, the cost for that. And this, again, is my opinion. Hamas doesn't care about the Palestinian people. It doesn't even care about the Palestinian people in Gaza, really. They're mostly pawns in an ongoing ideological war with the Zionist state, as they call it, and with America. And that's why most of their headquarters are underneath schools and hospitals. It's because of the pawn game. And you can say, backed into a corner, they, they have every right to act in the way. And then we'd be in a real ideological debate, conversation, okay. Um, but my opinion is they don't have the interest of the larger Palestinian people and the possibility of sending your kids to school and buying bread and having uh, electricity that works as front and center. That's my particular view on Hamas. Islamic Jihad and about 12 other groups are also involved in this. And then you have what's going on in the West Bank, which I'm probably not going to talk about, but you should try to separate them out in your mind. In other words, I don't think it's as simple, and this is another phrase you're going to start hearing, well, we should be sympathetic of both sides. I'm saying there are dozens of sides here, and let's try to be clear about what we're talking about. Um I don't know, maybe here's something else I'd like to say about it. That history is complicated. And I'm saying this to myself, like I'm I'm now sitting where you're sitting and I'm I'm talking to myself. Whatever narrative that you're presently holding uh needs some reshaping. And I'm I'm preaching to Kent, all right? And we're all prone to gravitate toward whatever narrative is the easiest. And I, I mean, as, as soon as I, people start talking about this, I hear a series of sentences. Well, you have to understand that's usually how it begins this event, this event, this event, this event, this event, therefore. And that's part of the issue and the problem. Just didn't let's, I think we need to admit that even our reading of history is very complicated. And filled with stories or myths or half-truths. And none of us are going to clean that up. I'm not saying like just, you know, really go on Facebook over the next week and clean up your narratives. I just mean it's a starting place that maybe I don't have the corner on the story or what's going on. It's just kind of An aside, a point I'd like to raise, and I'm not going to say much more about it. Here's another point I want to raise. Anti-Semitism is real. It's very real, and it's, it's infused inside these ideological camps, particularly things that come from Iranian money, like Hezbollah and Hamas and Islamic Jihad. I'm not pretending when I say anti-Semitism or exaggerating when I say anti-Semitism is a part of this. I'm saying it's at the very core. Now, you, ha- you can d- d- decide as an autonomous, free, free enough American over here in West Michigan in the county of Ottawa um, what you think about that and, and how, um, how you personally feel about anti-Semitism. Whether or not you possess it or don't possess it or how big of a problem you think it is in the world, I'm suggesting, I'm saying, you don't have to believe me, that it's deeply infused in this conflict. Um, And it starts in kindergarten or earlier. And it fuels much of the rage and the hatred and what eventually spills out into what we call terrorism. That's not to say there's no such thing as um, Jewish people who might feel the same way about Arabs. I'm I'm not making that claim. That's largely not the stance, though, of most Israelis that I know. Here's something else I'd just like to point out. (laughs) The long-promised two-state solution is, is receding here. It's been receding for about 15 years um, and some other alternatives are going to have to arise and I'm not a politician and no one will elect me if I was running. Um, but um, that's, a, that's a lot to grieve, really. And the possibility, the Palestinians, um, here's another uh, dimension of the Palestinian um, problem, is that much of the Arab world doesn't care about them either. And um, in terms of deep and genuine support, they often use, again, just like uh, Hamas does, the Palestinian people as pawns. You still have the problem of two million people living in Gaza and three and a half million people now. I, I don't remember exactly. There's a population problem um, on both sides here. Anyway, living, living in, the, in the West Bank. Um, how we have the problem of having a a basic structure of safety and economy and a a workable political life. It's a problem, is what I'm saying. I'm not suggesting that the state or no state is the only solution. I'm saying we still have a major problem, but the two-state solution is receding here. Here's another point I want to make, just kind of a... um, to bring it back to your um, voting booth. <laughs> American politics matters in this particular conflict. Who, who we put in power really matters. And they don't often, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but politicians don't often tell the truth <laughs> about what they're really up to. But I'm just saying, um, part of being an American citizen is taking responsibility for clarifying your own personal views your communal views and wondering about the relationship between my my power to vote and what happens in the world. Now, I happen to be the sort of person that is more concerned about international politics than um, culture war stuff. I really don't care that much about culture war stuff, even though I, it, you know, I know it affects real people. Um, but. This is another example of just how much your tax dollars and the way the United States government, um, it, it's just another example of how important that conversation is. So I'm just reminding you that look carefully at what people believe and how you want the world to, to, to be as much as possible. Um, I had, uh, I I wasn't sure, it's funny because I've never really been a minority in my life, big surprise, I'm a white male here, Um, and I never felt out of place until I moved to Israel, which is funny because, um, I don't know, it's just, it's just odd. I remember one time uh, I was coming home late from the library and, you know, because I'm so smart and, you know. Studious. I was coming home late from the library. It was like eleven o'clock, and it's raining, and I have my hood up, and, um, and a backpack, and and it's raining kind of hard. And all of a sudden, in front of me, comes a, a a military jeep that jumps up onto the curb, and the doors open, and they all get out with guns like this, and. Um, that doesn't happen in Ada, Michigan. <laughs> and of course, this was in the Antifada, so it was, there was reason to be suspicious of people at night wandering around with backpacks. And um, they're yelling at me in Hebrew, and I know just enough to know they're yelling at me in Hebrew. <laughs> and I'm saying, I'm an American. And they don't really care at that point. Um, and I'm there asking for ID, and I'm like, who carries ID? And they're like, where's your ID? And I it's like, I don't have an ID. And Anyway, eventually they figured out I really was coming back from the library <laughs> and not a threat. But it was a strange time in my life, um, feeling out of place. And as a Christian, um, Christians are not that well-liked in, in Israel, and... Um, and sort of as an American in general. So Jewish people are suspicious. What the hell are you doing here? Are you trying to convert us? Arabs are suspicious for other reasons. Um, Anyway, I kind of stumbled into a community, a kind of international church called Narquise when I was there. Narquise was the name of the street that it was on. And it was an odd mixture of, of expats and Israeli citizens. It was an odd mixture of um, Jews, some Jews, um, and Arabs, and it was the only place that I found in Israel, the only church I found in Israel, that wasn't explicitly and overtly on one side or the other. And what I mean by explicitly and overtly, I mean every Sunday saying, from the pulpit, the Israelis are the problem, or from the pulpit, the Arabs are the problem, okay, this is part of the religious tenor of the, particularly Jerusalem. So I got lucky in a way that I stumbled into this church community. And, um, I was just remembering this morning, uh, we had kind of a complicated relationship with Gaza, and every Christmas we would buy ornaments made by uh, kids in an orphanage in Gaza, um, or, like um, nativity ornaments. And then s- someone from the, from the church, it's kind of hard to get into Gaza back in those days, but we had one friend that worked for, um, the, what's the pink newspaper? Financial Times, and could get in and out of Gaza, and would go in there and get the ornaments from the orphanage and bring them, and we'd buy them. It was just a way of supporting the, the community. And then there was another organization in, in the church that helped extract kids from Gaza and other parts of the Middle East, too, including Iraq, um, who needed very specific heart surgery that that they could only get in Israeli hospitals. And it was all a long process of negotiation. And So we had, um, I don't know, we had this strange relationship with the people of Gaza, seeing them as human beings like orphans and kids with heart defects. And at the same time, inside the church community, we had you know, the parents, not me, because I wasn't a citizen, were sending their kids into the, into the IDF, you know, the Israeli military. That's a fine line to walk, you know, and it's so, I don't know the right way, inspired me that it's possible to love human beings as human beings and even to work toward things like justice and also be very realistic that there are enemies in the world and Sometimes there's a fight. And um, not everything is settled at the negotiation table. And I don't know, it was that kind of community. And, you know, I guess I'm feeling like it was the first, I used to hear this, uh, you've probably heard the phrase, it's more of a Buddhist idea of a third way. Familiar with that? You know, not right, not left, but a third way it was the first time i started to feel like oh there there might be such a thing and the interesting thing about third way is that it's not a, exactly like a compromise it's when two things live in tension long enough that some kind of third possibility arises in the mist that no one can see and there was part of me that felt like Narquise was uh, of his, at least an example of living inside that tension and I'd like to try to take that stance, even though I have, you know, I have some pretty strong views about the kind of organization Hamas is and what it's doing for the world and um, and how it's harming the Palestinians and not to mention um, killing Israelis. But I hope to inhabit that kind of space. That um, uh, I don't know how does uh, Thurman put it there is in every person an inward sea, and in that sea there's an island, and on that island is an altar. I want to be able to say that's true of every human being on this planet. Um, yeah, I could say uh, about a hundred other things, and, but I just wanted to kind of speak uh, off the cuff here and um, just to encourage a kind of dialogue. And a kind of openness to possibility. And maybe the thing to end with is a line from the Psalms, which you've heard, I'm sure. And I don't know how you feel about prayer, (laughs) um, but embedded in the Psalms is this little line, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And I sometimes think about that, and I think about that now. Now, I don't know how prayer works. And I don't have like this, I don't have like a mechanistic sky god, like if I in the right coinage into the vending machine of divinity out will come some sort of solution um, but i i think about that phrase that's a hard one honest and authentic admission out of a very desperate place um <laughs> we used to talk about in in graduate school that um Historical Israel was like a mouse and everyone else in the area was like a cat. Okay, that's how. It a sort of silly way of saying the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Egyptians and the Romans, they had all the power and they're the, those are the cats, those are the poli- political cats on the scene and Israel was like a mouse. And you could say, well, times have changed. And to some extent that's true, though the larger power dynamics of the region make that more complicated. In any, in any case, some. Um, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem was a kind of a desperate um, call to a God when um, there was the constant possibility of your own demise. And in many respects, that's still the case. And and now it's even more complicated because pray for the peace of Jerusalem, I think, means peace for all peoples who are present there and who have found themselves there by, in most cases, not their choice anymore. Like, no one chooses their parents in the first place, I don't know if you're familiar with this, nor the religion, or lack of religion, nor skin color, nor tribal affiliation, nor geography. And I don't know, maybe I just want to say in your own way, I hope you'll You can feel into the power and the possibility of that line. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That's it.